Hi, folks. Welcome back into Flourish FM. Glad to have you here with us. Uh, we got a real treat for you today. We talked to Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Tal is a huge name in the world of positive psychology and now more formally happiness studies. A lot of you have probably heard about the positive psychology class at Harvard in the early 2000s that became the most popular class in Harvard's history. Well, that was Tall's class. He's sort of an OG in the world of studying happiness scientifically. He comes with a wealth of knowledge. He's published, I think, double-digit books on the topic at this point and runs a really awesome academy called Happiness Studies Academy, where you can learn more about the science and even earn a master's degree in it. So this was a real treat for us. John, what were some of the highlights for you? Thank you. Yeah, loads in this. Tal's definition of happiness and the way he relates to flourishing. He defines flourishing as the outcome of happiness and defines happiness as wholeness or whole being. And he has what's called this SPIRE model. SPIRE being an acronym that stands for different types of well-being. Spiritual well-being, for example, is the S. He defines spirituality as living a life where we see our activities as meaningful and purposeful and, and recommended some practices for developing spirituality, such as writing down a calling description rather than a job description. That was one of several areas in this call that I found really useful kind of practical steps informed by his research. Were there any others that you really liked in this? Ditto to all of that. You know me, like I love the the riffing on anti-fragility and resilience and kind of happier no matter what. Not po not toxic positivity, not just kind of sucking things up, but figuring out a way to grow and kind of maintain, you know, perspective in the midst of adversity. I thought that was really useful, but everything was useful. Such a brilliant guy and it was really fun. So mm -hmm. uh, excited yeah. to share this most recent episode with you all. Here it is, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Hey, Tal. Hey. First, John Tall. Tall John. Hi, Tall. Hi. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's honor to meet you. So, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, great to be here with you and, and to see you again. I, I thought it might be apropos if we'd actually start with a very brief gratitude visit, if, if you wouldn't mind. Um, I, I don't know if you recall us meeting. You meet hundreds of people many, many times, um, but certainly my meeting you really stood out, and I see you shaking your head, so I'm, I'm glad you do a bit. But of course. I was fortunate enough to hear a talk that you gave uh, at a former school of mine right in the middle of my PhD program, right when I was studying eudaimonia or eudaimonia, depending on how you want to pronounce it, and uh, went up to introduce myself. And I, I just, I think I've told you before, but in case I haven't, you were just incredibly kind to me. You offered to read my dissertation. You encouraged me to think about publishing it into a book, which I didn't do, by the way, because it wasn't very good. But It's not too uh, late. Yeah, it's true. That's true. But Anyway, it was just, I was at a point where I probably could have gone a lot of different paths and was pretty impressionable. And you were, you know, um, a person and are a person of great influence in this field. And, and you're just very encouraging and kind. And I'm deeply appreciative. It made a big difference for me. So thank you. Well, thank you. That is very kind of you. And uh, yes, I do remember that uh, uh, encounter well. And um, and I'm uh, glad you proceeded. I really hope you do publish that book because oh, I appreciate uh, that. The concept of uh, eudaimonia is um, is uh, sorely uh, missed in in the world of uh, positive psychology or happiness studies, uh, because it very much relates to the deep sense of happiness that 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 we need. 
Agreed, agreed. And you just gave us a good segue there because our first question for you was to really kind of tease apart similarities and differences between positive psychology and happiness studies, right? So as Flourish FM, we use flourishing a lot. We'll get to flourishing in a minute. But pause site comes up a bunch, right? And the phrase like happiness studies, maybe not quite as much. Where do you see kind of the similarities and differences? Yeah, so the the, the idea... Um, or a, a field of happiness studies came to me a few uh, six years ago or so when I was on a on a transatlantic flight uh, when a question came to mind and the question was how is it that there is a field of study for uh, psychology which is what I'd been doing uh, philosophy history biology uh, literature you name it but there is no field of study for happiness yeah there is a positive psychology but that's just the psychology of happiness. Mm. What about what philosophers had to say about happiness? And, you know, uh, Aristotle, Eudaimonia had a great deal to say about it. Or Lao Tzu, and what about what uh, um, theologians had to say about it? Or or um, or film, or art in general, or uh, um, uh, economics. Um, so there's so much work done on happiness in different fields. Why isn't there, I asked myself, a field or rather an interdisciplinary field that, that brings together these ideas? And I resolved then, and, and with a few of my colleagues, to help create such a field of happiness studies that, again, brings together philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, um, film, history, and, and, and so Very on. Cool. And uh, that's what we've been doing for the past uh, six years. We initially launched um, uh, a certificate program where we now have uh, thousands of students from over 75 countries. And just um, seven weeks ago today, uh, we launched uh, a master's degree in happiness. Oh, congratulations. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Wow. Amazing. That's really, really exciting. Who is that through a university as well? Okay. Correct. So it's a joint venture between the Happiness Studies Academy and Centenary University, which is a liberal arts university in New Jersey, actually not far from where I live, Uh, though it is an online degree. So we also have students from uh, quite literally all over the world. Amazing. That sounds incredible. Cool. Well, that's that's super helpful. I mean, that really added a lot of clarity. I know John enjoyed that. John's a philosopher, so you you definitely struck a chord (laughs) for him there. Yeah. Yeah, so Tali, are there any disciplines that you're yet to kind of incorporate into happiness studies that you also want to explore? Perspectives from another area of life. Good question. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's great. So yeah, I, I think about that a lot. You know, given that uh, my colleagues and I essentially, um, you know, wrote the um, the playbook for this uh, for this discipline, we obviously focused on our expertise, and you know, our expertise include uh, psychology course, uh, and then philosophy, and then literature and, and neuroscience. But none of us are anthropologists. And uh, there is so much that, that we can learn from the study of uh, culture, um, from um, uh, studying people, organizations, um, uh, places through ethnography. So so this is a, an area that we really want to, to introduce uh, focus on. Um, we are very big on, on literature and film for, for various reasons. A, because there were very smart people who, who engaged in, uh, in, uh, in these areas, but, but even um, more so because it allows for uh, more uh, creativity and openness and therefore exploration. 
So, uh, and, and it's accessible. People love to watch movies. They, you know, they enjoy reading fiction. And, um, you know, whether it's Marianne Evans or, or Shakespeare or Chinua Kebe had a lot to say about the good life. Reminds me a little bit, John. I know you want to take us to flourishing, but we, yeah. um, do you and Emily Estahani Smith know each other at all? No. Not yet. She, she's wrote, written a book, great book called The Power of Meaning has a great Ted talk on it, but our conversation with her in our second episode went down a road of just how do we teach meaning? How do we talk about meaning? Mm. And she made an argument around literature, you know, more generally. And it just sounds like there's some common themes there, right? The, the, what we can pull from those sorts of things. Yeah, very, very much so. In fact, one, one of uh, our uh, units uh, that are part of the, um, that is part of the certificate program and the master's program is around stories. And um, in many ways, I see stories as the unifying theory of psychology. Mm. You know, in in, in physics, um, they have been looking for the unifying theory of the universe and they haven't found it. Maybe we we can't find it. Maybe there isn't one. But there is one in psychology because if you look at stories, you find them everywhere. You know, what is therapy? Therapy is going and, you know, talking about your personal story and you feel better as a result of it. Uh, the, The best leaders storytellers you look at cognitive psychology what do we remember best not statistics stories um so it's uh, around stories that, that that a lot happens in psychology so we're, we're very big in 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 our pedagogy um we're very big on on stories their value and uh, their ability to not just transmit information but to inspire action mm, love that love that Awesome. Thank you, Tar. Okay, so we've got a distinction between happiness studies and positive psychology on the table. Let's next move to the distinction between happiness studies and flourishing. So some people might equate the two with one another, depending on how they define happiness, but there's many who would disagree um, and say they're different in various ways. It'd be really interesting to see what the difference is between the relations also between happiness studies and flourishing. How do you see the relation between them? Yeah, and I think you know the the um, the operative word or words is how do you see? Because this really mm-hmm. is a matter of um, of, of definition. You know, just uh, last night I was uh, participating in a in a panel, and the panel was around: uh, is it happiness or meaning? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and 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 my point there was: well, it's it's a question of definition. You know, I see meaning as a critical, important part of, uh, of, of a happy life. Uh, so it's not this or that, it's this and that, or this under that. And with flourishing, again, matter of definition. So let me just give you mine. Uh, I see flourishing as the outcome of leading a happy life. Mm-hmm. So if, um, you know, my definition of happiness includes five elements, and there are the, um, the acronym SPIRE. Right. SPIRE stands for spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. Now, if you lead um, a a spiritual life, meaning a life of meaning and purpose, uh, where where you um, are in the here and now present spiritual, if you're physically exercising, eating healthfully, uh, intellectual, that's the I of SPIRE, uh, you're curious, you learn, you develop, you grow. Uh, the R of SPIRE being relationship. If you cultivate relationship, if you're kind and generous. Mm-hmm. And finally, if you cultivate emotions, the E of SPIRE, pleasurable emotions and deal with, with painful emotions in a, in a healthy way, well, you're flourishing. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that, that's, that seems overwhelming. I know you're not doing all of it all of the time, but at least some of it, some of the time. 
Um, so as you focus on these elements, you lead, you're, you're, you're flourishing. But again, my definition, and I'd actually love to hear what, what you have to say about that. I love that definition, but John, I mean, John, jump in. Okay, sure. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I liked what I was quite taken by in, in your definition of spire is this emphasis you lay on wholeness and whole being, right? And that that connects also with one of our other conversations we had with Scott Barry Kaufman, where he was mm. um, very interested in the notion of wholeness and 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 growth. He actually argued that growth is a more important thing that we should be aiming for in life than flourishing. And growth towards this this wholeness of being, if you like, and and that's how I'm understanding Spire here, and I see a nice connection between that and, and flourishing. So perhaps if you could go a little bit further, Tal, and describe wholeness and whole being and how that relates to Spire, that'd be great. Yeah. So um, so here here, here is how it works. That I was for a long time looking for a definition um, of happiness, and in my uh, first book on this topic, I define happiness as combining meaning and pleasure. Um, in other words, not either uh, um, eudaimonia or hedonism, eudaimonia. but rather yeah. both. So look at, you know, Aristotle and uh, um, as, as, as well as, um, I guess, the work of, uh, of Hume or Epicurus and, and others looking at both together. Later on, I, I expanded that to, to, to include the five spire elements. Underlying it is a notion that we need to look at the whole person. And a whole person is you know, a person who's a physical being, uh, who is a, a rational being, again, going back to Aristotle, who's a social being, um, you know, who's also a, a, an, an emotional being. So we have all these elements in us. And... Um, aggregating them all into one whole person well-being or in a word whole being um, and this is a definition that relies again on the work of so many people primarily helen keller who said the following she said to me the only definition the, the only definition of happiness is happiness as wholeness and i found that uh, very very compelling so i see happiness as whole being however and here is the here is a big however. Um, we cannot just stop there because there isn't much that I can do simply by defining happiness as whole being. So what does this mean? What, what are the prescriptions yeah. that are uh, inherent in that definition? Not many. And therefore, um, there is a need to break it down, uh, the whole, into its elements. And the elements are the five spire elements. Right. Awesome. And there seems to be a clear connection between your account and other theories of flourishing in that you argue that each element is something we do just for the sake of doing it, right? As an end in itself. So spiritual well-being and so on, emotional well-being. These are things we do not for some further goal in life. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so 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 happiness in again, the words of Aristotle is the end to which all other ends lead. Mm -hmm. Um the importance though of having the five elements that are part of that whole is that uh, we know from the work of uh, Iris Moss that uh, and, and others, but if we wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, happiness is important for me, I want to be happy, I value happiness, then we'll actually be less happy. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem because we're constantly told how important happiness is, and we don't even need to be told that we want to be happy 
And yet, if I value it and if I um, if I focus on it, I'll actually end up being less happy. Mm-hmm. And um, and the question is, how do we resolve this issue? And the way to resolve this issue is to continue to pursue happiness only indirectly. And uh, let me explain this through an analogy that helped me uh, understand it better. Um, so you go outside, it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely sunny day, and you look up towards the sun. And when you do so, you actually get burned and you hurt yourself because you cannot look at the sun directly. It hurts. However, what if you take the sunlight, the rays of the sun, and you break them down, you know, say by using a prism. And on the other side of the prism, you get the colors of the rainbow. And then you look at those colors, those you can enjoy, those you Mm -hmm. can savor, those -hmm. you can benefit from. So you're looking at the sun, not directly, you're looking at it indirectly. In the same way, pursuing happiness directly is problematic. But waking up in the morning and saying, I'm pursuing happiness indirectly, in other words, the metaphorical colors of the rainbow, in other words, Mm -hmm. the five spire elements, as I see it, Mm -hmm. that's a whole different story because I can wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to exercise and, um, or today I'm going to spend more time with my loved ones, you know, exercise, physical well-being, loved ones, relational well-being, or today I'm going to learn something new, intellectual well-being, or today, um, I'm going to write, uh, express gratitude, emotional well-being. We are indirectly pursuing happiness. And that is how we can, uh, we can, um, derive the benefits Mm. Um, of uh, of these pursuits, not by directly, but rather by indirectly pursuing that's, happiness through the spire elements. That's incredibly useful. Really, really love that analogy. Thank you for for sharing that with us. You know, we've gone through these different components of spire, and you just mentioned, just kind of as a side, some tangible action steps people might take. Um, our most recent episode w- was with Lisa Miller. I'm not mm, sure if you, yeah, so I figured you and Lisa, yeah, you and Lisa probably know each other. And we're, we're pushing Lisa a little bit and said like, how do you do this? Like we're believers. We see the research. We get how important it is. We know the research on meaning. We know the research on purpose. We know it's tied for a lot of people with spirituality, religiosity. In some cases, those are not the same thing, but how do you do it? Right. What do you think? So how do you do spirituality or how do you do all the spire elements? Yeah, spirituality specifically. Yeah. So, you know, let me begin with something very concrete. One of the exercises that I do with my corporate clients is um, I ask them to write, instead of a job description, I ask them to write a calling description. Yep. Mm. Because, um, you see, Mm. we experience reality... um, at least in part, based on what we focus on. You know, this is why, you know, two people can participate in the in the same race, have the same expectations, do as well. One of them is disappointed, the other is thrilled. Or at the very least, uh, um, cognizant of the important lessons that, that, that she has learned from this fa- failure, so yeah. to speak. So our interpretation of the world uh, matters uh, a great deal. Um, so if we, uh, write about our work and focus on the parts that provide us with a sense of meaning and purpose, with a sense of calling, 
then we're likely to experience our work in a diff very different way than um, if we just write about the job that we have. And this, of course, relies on the work of uh, um, uh, Amy Wisniewski and Jane Dutton, who uh, beautifully distinguish people's work orientation into three categories. You can see your work as a job, which is essentially a chore, something that you have to do. You can see your work as a career, which is some, which is all about progress and making it to the next uh, milestone. Or you can see your work as a calling, which is about finding purpose, meaning uh, in what you do. And what they show in their important work is that much of our experience of work, do we experience it as a job, career, or calling? Do we experience it as, um, as the mundane or the sacred, as material or spiritual? That, to a great extent, depends on our subjective interpretation of what we do. Love it. Thank so, you for that. I, I love this. And this Nick mentioned earlier, Emily Esfahani's Smith's work and a connection there. And I see a clear connection again with your work here, Tarlin, that uh, she recommended and, and she referred to instances of people she'd met whom described their work in this more meaningful way. So, um, for example, a cleaner at a hospital who described her work as um, helping people become well again. Right, where, where as you can imagine, someone sees that their work is extremely different. So I was quite taken, Tal, by your definition of spirituality and spiritual well-being in your most. This is your most recent book, isn't it? Happiness studies. It is happiness right? studies. Yes. Right. Um, sorry, you write so many books. Right? I'm sure I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> You're um, a machine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I just wanted to ask you about this as well, connected with next one on the practicalities of spirituality, because we have had a, in addition to Lisa Miller, who had a few guests that have talked about spirituality and and defined in different ways and it seems that your definition is that um to to live a life that's meaningful and purposeful which can be to a significant degree subjective in terms of how you see your activities is to lead a spiritual life so am i am i right in thinking that as long as you find what you're doing or see it in a way that that develops and builds meaning and purpose for you that is cultivating spiritual well-being and that is spirituality Yes. Again, this is my definition. I'm not, it's not, right. you know, I, I didn't receive it, in, you know, on in, in, in the mountaintop and uh, I did not hear uh, um, the, the, the magic voice in, in my head. It's a definition. I'm, again, I'm not the only one who defines it that way, but it, it's one that works for me. Um, but there is another element to spirituality that, uh, that I talk about. So one is the meaning and purpose. The other is presence. It's being mindful. It's be, because, you know, if you are really present to another person in a conversation or to the uh, tree right next to you, you can very much uh, experience it uh, in uh, or experience your life as uh, as spiritual. And that also has to do with something which is more general that very much relates to the way we live our life today. And that is we're always in a hurry. And, uh, you know, uh, Henry David Thoreau, who certainly lived a, a very spiritual life, said, life is too short to be in a hurry. And, um, and, and the way he experienced spirituality is by walking in nature. You know, the way Ralph Waldo Emerson experienced spirituality is by walking in nature and, and taking time and being present to whatever it is that we're experiencing uh, that elevates our uh, spiritual quota. Beautiful. I'd love to to riff on this really, really important, I think, notion you bring up, which is perception. 
right? What we focus on, what we perceive, right? You referred to counterfactual thinking and some of the foundations of, you know, cognitive behavioral techniques and those sorts of things. Really, really important tools. And it seems to me that there's a nice tie-in with one of your other more recent books, which is Happier No Matter What. I'd love to like take this idea of perception and explore hope, optimism, resilience, ask Mm -hmm. you to tell our audience a little bit about how those would tie in. And then if we could, I'd love to take it a step further because my my thought is, you know, words like anti-fragility, resilience, happier no matter what, seems like it can quickly turn into, you know, I don't want to say victim blaming, but like you're perceiving things in a way that's causing you the problem. And I wonder if there's some objective truth where it's it's not on the perception, right? But then I go back to Viktor Frankl and say, well, I don't know. In extreme circumstances, people seem to be able to do it. So let's start with definitions and then maybe we can tease apart that tension a little bit. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's very important to tease that right. tension apart because one of the things that... Um, often happens, unfortunately, around the whole field of happiness and, and positive psychology is that um, is the guilt associated with um, with everything from a painful emotion to illness, because I must have brought that on myself, or I have a choice mm-hmm. uh, at every moment in my life, and, and why am I experiencing sadness? What's wrong with me? Um, so, so, so I do want to talk about that. But before that, the, the, the concept that is um has become central to my work over the past uh two plus years since uh covid hit really is the the, the concept of anti-fragility which you mentioned and uh, this is uh this was introduced um by Nassim Taleb originally from Lebanon now a professor at NYU and uh, anti-fragility is what I've come to see as resilience 2.0 so resilience 1.0, which is a term uh, originating in engineering, is the ability of a body or material to go back to its original form after stress was applied on it. So you have a ball, um, uh, you know, a rubber ball, you squish it. If it's resilient, when you let go, it goes back to its original form. You drop that ball. If it's resilient, it bounces back up to where it was before. That's resilience, bouncing back. Anti-fragility, resilience 2.0, takes this a step further in that if you put pressure on certain material, if it's resilient, it goes back to where it was before. If it's anti-fragile, it grows bigger, stronger, better, healthier. Um, Or you drop the ball. If it's resilient, it bounces back up. If it's anti-fragile, it bounces back up higher. And um, it turns out that we have anti-fragile systems all around us and within us. So um, within us, physiologically, are muscles. You put pressure on them. You stress them in the gym. As a result of that stress and pressure, they actually grow stronger, bigger, mm-hmm. and healthier. Um, and it also, we also see it psychologically, and specifically with the concept of PTG, post-traumatic growth. Now, going back to the, uh, the important distinction that you made. Now, it is true. Post-traumatic growth is potentially, emphasizing potentially, twice as likely as post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, In other words, there's a better chance following a trauma, a hardship, and it could be a global trauma like COVID. It could be a personal trauma like being a victim of something. Um, You're twice as likely to grow, potentially, 
than to uh, to deteriorate. In other words, to be anti-fragile rather than fragile. The problem with what I've just said is that it sounds like this is romanticizing trauma. Oh, so trauma is a good thing. You'll grow from That's wonderful. No, it's not wonderful. It's terrible. Um, you know, um, growing up, I remember I used to hear this sentence all the time from the, um, you know, the powers that be in our community. They would always say, oh, things happen for the best. And I must say, even when I was, a, you know, a wee boy, I, I never really connected to that saying, I, I didn't believe that things happen for the best. And over the years, I've, I've slightly modified this uh, saying that while things don't happen for the best, we can choose to make the best of things that happen. And that is very different. So, no, the trauma is COVID did not happen for the best. I mean, people lost their lives, really. Abuse never happens for the best. It's terrible. Um, however, these things happen. As terrible as they are, they happen. And the question is, what do we do when they do happen? And then I want to be in a place where I can make the best of it. Mm -hmm. In other words, yeah. I want to put in place the conditions, and we know what some of these conditions are, that increase the likelihood, not guarantee because we can never guarantee, but increase the likelihood that we will grow from hardship, that we will experience post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress disorder, that we will become anti-fragile rather than break down. And this is the value, the the the... the the invaluable value of positive psychology, the science of happiness, even in difficult times, like, like the times we're going through right now. Again, not to romanticize or glorify hardship and, 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 and certain trauma, but simply to say, these things happen. How can we maximize the likelihood, increase our chances of actually growing, of making the best of things that happen? Love it. So I have a question for you because, you know, uh, you, you had no idea about this at all, but I, I actually have a education and training company called the Anti-Fragile Athlete. And so we're thinking really, really hard about these sort of things. And I imagine this resonates with you because I know you're a national squash champion for Israel, right? And my question is, because I've been going around this with my uh, partner, who's also an academic. What's the relationship between anti-fragility and happiness or well-being? Do you think happiness and well-being underpins a person's ability to develop anti-fragility? Um, so the um, you know, it reminds me, um, Marty Seligman, when he was interviewed years ago by CNN, he was asked about so um so Professor Seligman, uh, what do you think of the state of the world? You know, they asked him as an expert in in happiness, what do you think of the state of the world? And he said, in one word, good. In two words, not good. So, um, so I have a similar answer to you. Um, so, in one word, yes, there is a very strong connection uh, between um, uh, between happiness, well-being, and, and anti-fragility. Um, but that connection uh, has to be um, uh, explained, and, and, and let, let me attempt to do so. So, what we find is that. If you increase levels of happiness, of well-being, you, by default, become more resilient. You become more anti-fragile. And the reason is because so many of the things that lead to happiness turns out also lead to anti-fragility. So, you know, your field, Nick, when uh, um, around eudaimonia and meaning, we know that people who find a sense of meaning and purpose, first of all, are 
happier, they, you know, well, their well-being increases significantly. And we also know that they are more likely to experience post-traumatic growth. Yep. In other words, anti-fragility. You know, in the words of, of Nietzsche, when you have a what for every how becomes possible. You know, if you have a if you have a, a goal, an objective, something meaningful that you're doing, you can, you know, usually uh, overcome barriers, hardships, and, and challenges. So they're very much connected, but they're not the same. Because what again, what it, it's it's a little bit similar to the, I guess, difference between happiness and flourishing, in that you know, happiness is a, a state or a way of, of, of being. Anti-fragility is a consequence. Mm-hmm. Now, if you yeah. do all these things, you will be more anti-fragile when you, uh, if you cultivate your, 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 those elements of, of happiness, when the time comes and you will be required, you know, strength will be required of you, you you'll have those resources. Are these the core takeaways of happier no matter what? Um, the core takeaways would be, um, yes, the, the importance of the field of happiness studies in difficult times. Because, you know, I, I start the book by um, recounting an, uh, an, a conversation with a friend who said to me, you know, really, you're talking about happiness now with COVID, with the war going on, with the social unrest that we, we saw at the time? You're talking about happiness? You know, shouldn't you quarantine happiness, uh, at least for a while? And, um, and and my answer to that was was absolutely no. In fact, we need to um, to bring it out in full force, not because uh, not not even because we need to use the word happiness now. You know, telling a person who's in a war zone, oh, you should be happy. You know, that yeah. would fall on deaf ears at best. Um, but 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 rather instead to look at the antecedents. Again, John, I go back to our conversation to the antecedents of whole being, i.e. the spire elements, and see how they could uh, lead to the cultivation of anti-fragility, of resilience 2.0. Awesome. So thank you so much for this task. So your kind of main recommendation is that by developing each of those areas of main recommendation so far, developing each of those areas of whole being, each of the spire elements, thereby increases our happiness, thereby increases our flourishing, but also increases things that support our happiness, such as resilience and anti-fragility. Are there any others that you think listeners should really pay attention to developing and building? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the the, the thing about the SPIRE model um, being a holistic model, WH, a holistic model, is that um, everything within it is uh, interconnected. Which means that if we cultivate the um, um, some of the spire elements, we're also affecting the other spire elements. And I'll and, and I'll give you an example. Let's add focus on relationships. And relationships we know are the number one predictor of happiness. And let's say I only focus on uh, relationships. Well, that is going to obviously have an effect on my emotional well-being. That is also going to make me more resilient because we know how important relationships are for resilience and for anti-fragility. That is also going to affect um, my um, my uh, through improving my my mood. It's also going to affect how um, how well I learn and how creative uh, I am. So they are all interconnected. So in many ways, you know, I, I think about it this way: 
you know, it's like the, the theory of the Big Bang. You know, initially there was, you know, one, you know, black hole and then everything just exploded and came came out of it. But initially there was one hole and, 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 and that's it. So whole being, it's one theory. And then we break it up into pieces. And in many ways, how we decide to define those pieces or the pieces that we define to focus on has to do with our subjective interpretation. Because, you know, I have the spire model, someone else has the perma model, someone else has um, the rise uh, model, and, you know, and, and and someone else may come up with, um, with something entirely, entirely different with no overlaps. And that's okay. The key, the, 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 the importance of having these definitions is so that we can operationalize the good life. And you call it happiness, you call it flourishing, you call it... Uh, um, uh, you call it joy. How do yeah. we operationalize and specifically what action is prescribed by, uh, by, by our definitions and explanations? Because in many ways you can just, and that's the nice thing about a system, a whole, is you can enter it anywhere and because everything is interconnected, you can affect the whole system from anywhere in the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, not necessarily. Dan. I would say, I mean, Tal, you just gave us a nice opening for what is usually our final question, but it's just sort of right on target. So I'll bring up our, our so aptly titled flourishing question. It As you're walking through this, it occurs to me, I'm thinking Pareto principle. I'm thinking, okay, like there's probably some core things that if you really focus on those, they're going to spiral out, right? And have this bi-directional relationship. And our flourishing question usually asks for one thing, right? Um, Just to kind of put the pressure on you. If you have that one thing, great. But if you give, I don't know, one, two, three, you know, do you think there's sort of an 80-20 for some Mm. activities that really have, you know, high leverage impact on happiness? So again, in one word, absolutely. Yeah. In in more than one word, it, uh, it it depends on who we are because it's different for me than it is for you. One of the things that I that, that I often think about, you know, I'm not a therapist. Um, however, if I were a therapist, the first question that I would ask my my client uh, after maybe asking them for their name is, um, "Do you exercise?" Mm. Because um, the research on um, on um on, on exercises quite literally, not just metaphorically, mind-boggling. So we know how it contributes to our to our health, how it reduces the significantly reduces the likelihood of chronic disease. Um, you know, we're more likely to live longer if we exercise a lot longer if we exercise regularly. But also we we know today how much it affects our 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 mind, our emotional life uh, as well. In fact, regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. No big surprise because it works in the same way. You know, we release uh, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in the brain. So we have all this research showing that physical exercise is as powerful as our you know, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. And when I initially, when I initially encountered this research, I said to myself, wow, this is interesting. So regular physical exercise is like taking an antidepressant. But when I thought about it some more, I realized that that's not exactly the case. 
But it's not that exercising is like taking an antidepressant, but rather that not exercising is like taking a depressant. Not exercising is like mm. taking a depressant. Why? Mm. Because we weren't made to be sedentary, you know, to sit in front of a computer all day or to sit in, you know, meeting rooms and 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 just, you know, move our hands and, and mouth. We were we were made to run after you know, an antelope for lunch or run away from a line so that we don't become lunch. You know, we were created to to to, to gather food, to carry water, um, to work, to move. And over the many years of evolution, you know, we, we have become, it became a need, this need to move. And when we frustrate a need, and it could be a need for a vitamin or for oxygen or, or for, for, or for liquids or whatever, when we frustrate a need, we pay a price, physical and psychological price. So when we frustrate the need for physical exercise, we pay a price. And if our God-given, evolution-given, genes-given level of happiness, our set point is, is in a certain place, if we do not exercise, we actually lower it. And therefore, it's like taking a depressant. And all we're doing when we exercise again is simply raising our levels of well-being to its natural state. Now, if I were a therapist, I don't want to fight nature. I want to work with nature. Mm. So let's first get your natural state. Now let's mm. begin the work as mm. opposed to, you know, let's work really hard just to get you up to a state where you by default need to be at if you simply do what nature dictates which is physical exercise now is this the only thing that's important you know and just you know go do go do sports all day and then you'll live happily ever after of course not but that is a foundation the beginning physical well-being yeah physical well-being one of yeah. uh, of course a very important part of, and and by the way physical exercise is not the only part of sure. physical well-being sure. you know there is um so much work being done uh, recently on nutrition and how important that is sleep. You know, by the way, after reading that book, Walker, I couldn't fall asleep because, because sleep is so important. And I said to myself, go to sleep. It's important. You're, you know, ruining your life if you're not sleeping. Um, it's like so, the happiness problem, too direct. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. So, yeah. so, you, so you need to take it with, again, with a, with a grain of salt. And it's okay yeah. even if you don't fall asleep. Yeah, great. <laughs> this is awesome. Excellent stuff. What are you hoping for yeah. from the Happiness Studies Academy going forward? What's, what's your vision? You know, some of your goals. You're doing so much great work in this area. You've been doing it for decades. What are you really hoping to do in maybe the next decade? Yeah, so my, my, my hope right now is that um, more universities will uh, come on board. I would love to see Happiness Studies established as, uh, as a, a respected, rigorous, um, and uh, pervasive field of great. study. And um, so if there are any universities interested in, in introducing this field, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, uh, to, to help. And, um, you know, this is our, our, our vision at, you know, the Happiness Studies Academy and Centenary University. We really want to spread happiness because it matters so much. It matters because it feels good to feel good. It matters because when you're happy, um, you're, you contribute more. It's important because you're healthier it's uh, it's important because you're more resilient, more anti-fragile. There are so many reasons 
to increase happiness in our schools, in our organizations, in our in our community communities and homes. And um and and we shouldn't leave this um uh, this pursuit just to to chance or to um um or to um unfounded uh, assertions which mm. is what the field was dominated by for many many years you know with the self-help movement or the new age movement uh, today we have a science of happiness we have a science yeah. of well-being it needs to be more accessible love it so how can people access it how can they follow you hear more about your work get in touch with happiness studies academy or anything else that would help them well um you know my website is uh, my name.com tal ben shahar or one word talbenshahar.com and uh, the happiness studies academy is happiness studies with three s's dot academy beautiful great great tal this was really terrific we're so honored to be able to chat with you really appreciate the time we know how busy you are you know how influential you are what a name you are in this field and this was a real honor for john and i thank you well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the work you do. Thank you, Tal. It's been great. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, you can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, we've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work. <laughs>